Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called Hate, Heresy and the Fight for Free Speech. In the chair is Tamanja Harkness. Good morning and welcome to this session on hate, heresy and free speech. Uh, I'm Tamandra Harkness and I am chairing this session, which is a great honour. It's great to see so many of you here. I have an announcement to make, which is that, as you can see, there are only four speakers on this panel, which should have been five people. And some of you may not be surprised to hear that is because one of the speakers, Professor Kathleen Stock, feels that she cannot be here because of the events of the recent week. She has sent a statement, which I will read out, which I think will explain that. Uh, and I, I, I'm really sorry that she can't be here because I feel that this is a setting, in fact, where she could express her views and we could have a civilised debate uh, and a to and fro of opinions in the way that debate should be had, that you can disagree with people in a way that's constructive and reasoned and reasonable and not intimidating. But she did not feel able to make the journey here particularly. So she's not here. I'll read out her statement in a moment. So instead, we have a panel of four people and you, and we look to you to fill out the debate and, and make this really satisfying. But I, I think it does give an edge of very tangible urgency to this, this whole uh, debate, really, as shit just got real, as the... I was about to say, as the young people say, but I'm, I'm sure the young people <laughs> do not say that. <laughs> So uh, I, I, will, I will introduce the panel and then I will read out Kathleen Stock's statement that she sent and then we will proceed. So the panel uh, that is here, we have Dr. Joanna Williams on my immediate right, founder and director of, now I don't even know how to say this, Keo, uh, spelled C-I-E-O, uh, which uh, is a think tank. Uh, she's the author of several books, Women Versus Feminism, another reason why it would have been great to have... Kathleen also on the panel, uh, consume, and Consuming Higher Education, Why Learning Can't Be Bought, and Academic Freedom in an Age of Conformity. And she's also a regular uh, columnist for Spiked and uh, The Telegraph, The Spectator, and other publications. Uh, then we have on my left, Dr. Piers Ben, who's a philosopher, a lecturer, and an author, currently lecturing in philosophy at the University of Roehampton, but has a track record that includes St Andrews, uh, Imperial College, King's College London, and various other institutions. Uh, in the 1990s, he organised seminars for students in Poland and the Czech Republic, uh, which is, I think, an interesting point of development of ideas in the immediately post-communist world. Uh, and he's, he's the author of several publications, and the most recent is Intellectual Freedom and the Culture Wars, which was published last year. Uh, and then we will then hear from James Murray, who's uh, at the end here, who's a lawyer, uh, higher education and employment lawyer at Taylor Vintners, uh, and also research fellow at the University of Buckingham. He has particular expertise around academic freedom, free speech on campus. He submitted evidence to the UN Special Rapporteur on free speech and the UK Parliament's Joint Committee on Human Rights, and is currently, in fact, working with legislators on the forthcoming Higher Education Brackets Freedom of Speech Bill. And then uh, on my right, some of you may have just heard him speak, we have uh, James Tooley, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Buckingham, who uh, 
He has a previous academic record at the Universities of Oxford, Manchester and Newcastle. Uh, but he's been doing a lot of work on developing low-cost private education in developing countries. And I read Riley that he's co-founded chains of low-cost schools in Ghana, India, Honduras and England. Um, not quite sure what that says about the English education system. Uh, and his book based on that research, The Beautiful Tree, was a bestseller in India and, and won a prize. He's, and he's, he's written various other books on education and, and liberty. So I, I'm going to start off by reading um, Kathleen's statement that she sent, and then you will all get your five minutes each. Professor Kathleen Stock. I am an academic philosopher at the University of Sussex, a feminist, and have written on contentious issues about biological sex, gender identity, women's rights, and trans activist demands. I had hoped to address you personally at this session, and I'm very sorry to miss it. Unfortunately, events on my campus this week have prevented me. Since the beginning of the week, I have been subject to a campaign of harassment explicitly designed to have me fired for my academic views. My first inkling of it came when I came across stickers all over my building talking about the transphobic shit that comes out of Kathleen Stock's mouth. The next day I came across posters that named me, defamed me and demanded I be fired, plastered all over my route into campus. Things escalated from there and now the police are involved and treating it as harassment. Whoever is doing this is not remotely typical of the sort of Sussex student I normally teach. Most of my students are the same as they always have been. Curious, idealistic, insightful, passionate, full of bright ideas, keen to do the right thing and very fun to teach. But what has changed on campus in the last decade is the way that technology, most obviously social media, has allowed a few students <coughs> with totalitarian tendencies to have a disproportionate chilling effect on the rest. Young people are frightened to say what they think. In a weird reversal of the suffragette motto, deeds not words, on campus and in middle-class life more generally, there is an intense corrective emphasis on words not deeds. Get the word wrong and you risk social humiliation of the worst kind the kind that implies you are a bad person. Also different these days is the academic culture, which, thanks to the introduction of fees and league tables heavily based on metrics of student experience, is shifting towards the pastoral, the parental, and the cocooning, at least superficially. EDI, that is Equality, Diversity and Inclusion groups, bombard faculty and students with initiatives closely monitoring teaching materials for insensitive language, showing kindness and inclusivity, issuing trigger warnings, calling out perceived injustice, being an active bystander, and other heavily moralised and nebulous instructions, which, of course, can each be interpreted wildly differently according to different subjective sensibilities. If, as an academic or student, you express hesitancy about any of these initiatives, then you are instantly castigated as unethical and badly motivated. Speech becomes more and more fraught, and the obviously detrimental impact on the value of academic freedom seems to be ignored by many. 
This is the fertile ground from which my student harassers have sprung. In my experience, plenty of academics will deny there is a free speech problem in academia. For some of them, this is because their own ideas are utterly banal for the discipline in which they work, so that they don't ever have cause to notice the problem. For others, it is because, like students, they are also caught up in the moralizing, self-aggrandizing, polarized cultural moment, and they mark disagreement as an instant sign of bad and corrupt character. Of course, someone like her shouldn't have a platform, they say. She is a bad person. Case closed. It's a remarkably handy and self-serving worldview, which means you never have to critically examine your preconceptions or justify your own position. And in my experience, means you lose brain cells by the minute. If we want to save academia from this creeping moralization, we have to fight hard collectively to preserve some space between our facts and our values. So that's Kathleen Scott's statement. And I have to say, Joanna Williams, follow that. <laughs> Well, I really wish, as I'm sure every person here does, that Kathleen was here because it very much feels as if the events that have happened to Kathleen over the course of this past week are very much shaping um, the debate that we're having here today, uh, despite that being in her absence. And, and certainly what happened to her this week is very much at the forefront of my mind when I was thinking about what to say today. And I think what I'd really like to do is just highlight some... Uh, emerging contradictions, if you like, as I see it, that, that's coming in the debate around hate, heresy, and free speech, uh, and really just put them out there as, as points for us to reflect upon this morning. Um, so the first thing I want to discuss is, is probably something which is obvious to everyone, but I think is really worth stating, and that's just our changed um, definition of hate and our changed understanding of what hatred means nowadays. So it seems that it's perfectly acceptable to call for someone to be fired, to put up posters around some, about someone, naming someone all over a university campus. Um, in the case of JK Rowling, to issue death threats, to issue rape threats. All of these things seem absolutely perfectly legitimate in the eyes of some people, uh, and they're not labeled as hate. And yet say that only women have a cervix state a biological fact, and that is what is considered to be hateful speech nowadays. And I think that's an utterly bizarre situation to be in. Death threats, rape threats, calling for someone to be fired, fine. Say that only women have a cervix, hateful speech. And it seems to me that hate is being redefined to essentially mean transgression from a woke orthodoxy nowadays. And I think that should disturb us. Um, the second thing I wanted to put out there, again, just, to, just as a, a contradiction that I've been aware of this week, is around the really, truly horrific um, case of the murder of Sarah Everard and the trial that took place uh, was coming to a conclusion at the end of last week uh, of, of Wayne Cousins and the context in which that was placed by many feminists, it has to be said, 
it was placed in this broader context of misogyny, which I think detracted really away from the unique evil, the, the, the horrendous crime that Wayne Cousins committed. But the point I want to make about this being a contradiction is that at the same time as we were being told in this broader debate that we couldn't possibly trust the police, and, and this seemed to come even from some within the police force itself, where women were being given the, again, frankly, bizarre advice that if a police officer tries to arrest you and you feel uncomfortable, you should go and flag down a bus. Um, women were being told you can't trust the police, and yet at the same time, the call was coming to make misogyny a hate crime, which incidentally would not have saved Sarah Everard's life, would not have saved Sabina Nessa's life. These women weren't killed by a vague concept of misogyny, um, by sexist insults, even by groping, by, by even the most horrible forms of misogyny you can think of. It wasn't that that, that was responsible um, for killing these women. It was Wayne Cousins, Sabina Nessa, was murdered by one particular man, one horrific individual, not by a general uh, concept of misogyny. So you've got this, this contradiction where on the one hand we're being told not to trust the police, and in the very next breath we're being told, well, the solution to this problem is to hand more powers over to police officers to criminalise more aspects of speech and to give police officers uh, power to really intervene in far more areas of our personal lives than ever before. And, and again, I think this is something that should really give us cause for concern. I think another interesting aside that comes from that, which again, I think is an important point to make, is that banning speech just seems to be the answer to every single problem we can think of nowadays. <coughs> Um, when you take these horrific murders and the answer that people come up with is, well, we need to criminalise speech. You know, th this shows that there's a real paucity of, of thinking. There's a real intellectual and political problem when this is the answer to every single problem. And the, the final point, I think, that I've, depending on how much time I have left that, I'll come on to, which is in a way connected to that, is this kind of redefinition of free speech that seems to be going on as well. Because one of the most distasteful things I've seen in the past couple of days in response directly to Kathleen's situation is people arguing, well, you know, they're only using their free speech, this anti-turf action group at Sussex, these protesters. Well, that, that's what you wanted. That's free speech for you, a kind of suck it up buttercup kind of attitude. You know, you should just take these posters, these calls for you to be fired because this is free speech. And of course, the bottom line is you would defend their right. You know, these, these students can make an anti-turf action mission statement. They can expose to the world how illiterate and um, politically ignorant and, and hate-filled they are if they want to. And, and yeah, I would actually defend their right to be able to do that. But we should be under no illusion that this is not debate. Um, they're not engaging with Kathleen Stock's ideas. Um, they're not taking up one argument that she's putting forward in her excellent book. Um, they're literally just telling her to shut up. So it's a very strange definition of, well, they're just exercising their free speech when all they are doing with this free speech is trying to get someone fired, trying to make them disappear, and trying to make whatever they say go away without actually making 
any attempt to engage with her argument whatsoever. If I can cram into 10 seconds, I'll just wrap my fourth contradiction. I think the hero of the past 24 hours really has been Adam Tickell, the Vice Chancellor of the University of Sussex. But how bizarre that we're looking to politicians, we're looking to uh, the Conservative Party, we're looking to vice chancellors of universities now to be the champions of academic freedom, the defenders of free speech, rather than students or academics themselves. So, uh, so Piers, your Five, five and a half minutes. Five and a half <laughs> right. minutes. Forty seconds. Um, <laughs> anyway, don't waste it. By okay, no, thank you very much. Thanks, thanks to Mandra. I'm very pleased uh, to be here. Uh, like most people in this room, if not all, I'm very sorry Kathleen can't be here. I was greatly looking forward to catching up with her. I knew her quite well in the late 90s when we were working in the same department. Uh, she doesn't suffer fools, but she's certainly not a bigot or a transphobe or anything, or anything like what's being hurled at her. And I think it's, it's utterly disgraceful what's been happening to her recently. And it raises, of course, the issue that we're here to talk about, which is hate, heresy, and the fight for free speech. In researching a, a long piece over last year, um, I decided to look at the strongest arguments that have been mounted against the position that I myself am inclined to. The people I was reading about were those who say, uh, there isn't really a problem of free speech, especially in universities. Um, either because what look like restrictions on free speech are in fact no such thing, I'll come to that in a minute, and associated with that idea, there's a thought that really uh, it's an effort to promote the free speech of the underprivileged. That's what's really going on when what, people, uh, when what people refer to as bans and so on. The other would be to say, yes, there, there are restrictions on free speech, but what a good thing that is too. Uh, you know, jolly good. I'm glad that racists and transphobes and misogynists are no longer allowed to speak. Now, there are some egregiously bad arguments for this position, but I don't want to spend too much time on them because there are better arguments. And what I want to say in these four minutes left to me is that sometimes people on the, quote, free speech side need to up their game because not all the arguments we're up against are stupid. Some deserve to be taken quite seriously, even though I don't think they succeed in the end. So in one minute, here are some bad arguments. People say this, there isn't a problem of free speech because the people who worry about this kind of thing are right-wing scum, okay? It's amazing how often you hear this sort of thing. Or, or it could be left-wing scum from the other side. I mean, there's a problem from the right as well. Let's not forget that. Now, I, this is a, a, a member of a cluster of arguments I will bring under the heading of informal fallacies, okay? Bring in a bit of uh, informal philosophical terminology. The fallacy here is the, the guilt by association fallacy and the ad hominem fallacy thinking you can refute an argument by pointing to the bad character of those who allegedly propose it. Here's another one you keep hearing. This must have a common source. I keep hearing it. Um, students occasionally uh, sort of repeat it to me. Um, sorry, I don't know where it comes from, but it's, it's this. No one should speak without consequences. Well, sure. I mean, I agree. But who says they should? I mean, the proper reply to that is, what should the consequences be of speech? And should they include being shut up? or shut down, or whatever the right term is for this. Um, this is the fallacy of irrelevance, okay? Perfectly true, yeah, I mean, we should expect consequences. I mean, maybe some of you will vehemently disagree with what I say. That's a consequence of my speaking to you, what I'm prepared to accept. But if I got sort of walked out of the room by people in white coats or police uniforms, that would be a consequence I would not welcome. 
and I hope you wouldn't either. Um, here's another one. I mean, actually, no, I won't do that. There are several like this, but if we just, on our side, talked about this sort of problem, we'd be guilty of another fallacy ourselves, the straw man fallacy, finding the weakest arguments and going about them. So there are better arguments for thinking that there isn't a problem of free speech in universities or societies. Here's one. Look, no one, or almost no one, believes in complete freedom of speech. Um, you know, English law has various restrictions. I mean, in law, the, the, the law of free speech here is basically governed by the Human Rights Act now, 1998, but there's the Public Order Act forbidding acts and speeches that cause alarm, harassment, alarm, and distress. There's now the Racial and Religious Hatred Act. There's the Communications Act. All sorts of laws that I imagine many people in this room would agree with. Laws that restrict incitement to violence, <coughs> defamation, libel, revealing state secrets, uh, making credible threats of serious harm, this sort of thing. That's speech, I think, and it should be outlawed. So what we need to know is whether the kind of things that are being discussed now really come under these headings. Um, I don't think they do, mostly, but we can debate that. Um, the problem with this argument is that we are induced to think that all attempts to restrict speech on campuses and elsewhere are based on this. It's about incitement to violence. Usually, it isn't. Um, here's another one. Um, what are dubbed attacks on free speech or examples of cancel culture are just boycotts. And there's no problem with that. Nobody, people like Kathleen Stock, J.K. Rowling, whoever, nobody has a right to an audience. Nobody <laughs> has a right that people should buy their books. Absolutely true. Um, being not invited to a panel doesn't, invite, doesn't amount to censorship. Not selling your books doesn't amount to censorship either. So we need to fine-tune our response to this. We should agree, of course, boycotts can be perfectly legitimate uh, acts of democratic protest. Um, the problem is this, that many of the arguments given for boycotting particular people, like Rowling, are just bad arguments. This is difficult. It's not that boycotting is bad per se. It's that very often the arguments given for those boycotts are just bad, based on falsehood. E.g. Rowling is a transphobe, and I can see no evidence, whatever, for that. I mean, by transphobia, I mean having an attitude of revulsion, hatred, or fear towards trans people. That's what we should mean by the term, not certain beliefs. Um, here's another one. But again, that argument is not foolish, because it's perfectly true. Boycotts are not the same as censorship. Here's another one in one, actually, 10 seconds. The chilling effect. People sometimes say, you know, Left -wing, left, the left-wing culture of universities has a chilling effect on Brexiters and gender-critical feminists. The difficulty here is that there's nothing wrong with majorities uh, exercising their freedom to speak. If minorities, uh, like Brexiters, feel intimidated, that doesn't mean they really are being intimidated. So this is a difficult grey area. I want to go into this, but I don't have time. The problem, briefly, is that when people morally grandstand and create an atmosphere of fear, and, and actually damage people's careers. That's where it comes from. So um, I've got a yellow card, I see. Um, in 12 seconds, I'll say, the case that people like us always use comes from John Stuart Mill. Um, you know, you should be allowed to say whatever you want, so as long as you don't harm other people. The counter-argument, of course, is we too appeal to Mill. A lot of speech is harmful. Therefore, we think, on million lines, speech should be censored. That's the real issue. Let's discuss it. Thanks.
Well done. Um, and extra marks from me for steel manning your own argument yeah. by <laughs> deliberately going out to find the best arguments against the case which I suspect most of this panel will be making. Uh, I hope you're impressed by the stopwatch going off on time, which I can assure you was completely accidental, because yeah. uh, I don't know how to work it. Um, <laughs> so on that note, uh, we have two Jameses on the panel. I'm in, in, in deference to your superiority, I'm going to call you Professor James. But oh, first... James, James the first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not that deferential. In this, in this conference, no. <laughs> people's ideas stand or fall on their own merits. Uh, but to distinguish, anyway, so you're going to be James, you're going to be Professor James. So, non-Professor James, take it away. <laughs> give your, I'm going to give you six minutes, because that's what everybody else has had. Well, with that introduction, uh, good morning, everyone. <laughs> so, I mean, the issue I wanted to reflect upon this morning is what practical tools, you know, the so-called heretics have for mounting a, a kind of case for free speech in the 21st century. Now, I think that case is particularly urgent, um, given what's happened with Professor Stock recently. Now, I'm approaching that question, as Jamandra said, from the perspective of a lawyer who advises academics and institutions on these issues. So forgive me if this is a case of Maslow's hammer, but I would like to advocate for the new Academic Freedom Bill, which is going through Parliament, at least as a partial answer to that question. So I have been very critical of that bill in the past, and it does have some major failings. But having said that, I do think it will have a significant and positive impact upon the sector overall. So I'll touch on the actual mechanisms of that in a moment. But overall, my experience in advising institutions suggests that it will advance a kind of gradual and positive shift in culture towards giving academics more confidence to put their head above the parapet, knowing that ultimately they'll be backed up to a more significant extent, both by the regulator and, and ultimately the courts. So if university administrators don't agree with what's being said, then what the bill is going to do is shift the balance of incentives for them in their decision-making processes towards more toleration of more academic speech. If they don't do that, then they're going to quickly realise they'll be facing regulatory action and, and lawsuits. So in terms of what the key, the, the key points of the bill, just very briefly, you know, first we'll have this new free speech complaint system this is going to have a very wide application as to who can use it. And the OFS will be able to make a really wide range of recommendations, including universities paying money as compensation, forcing them to offer new speaking invitations, revisiting policies such as Stonewall, which are often controversial, potentially even advising institutions to reinstate dismissed academics. That's something that the government has, has suggested they'll be doing under this. Secondly, you've got the new tort. Um, where individuals can seek legal redress. Now, the FSU are undoubtedly going to be all over that and challenging the boundaries of the law in appropriate cases to start developing this guidance, which will help universities hopefully be more pro-free speech and pro-academic freedom. Again, I think that's going to be crucial in shifting the balance of incentives for administrators. And thirdly, I just want to touch really briefly on the, the regulatory requirements. Of course, we're going to have a new academic freedom champion at the OFS. And Michelle Donnellan has also promised extensive new guidance around free speech. Now, that's, that's, good for, that's good in and of itself, but the existing guidance is particularly poor, I think. really doesn't reflect how strong the protections are for, for academic freedom. And, you know, this is all about re... re balancing 
the kind of incentives for administrators when they're making decisions in relation to, say, a student protest or dismissing an academic. Now, I think a useful anecdote, which, which I'll finish on about this, is, is Dr. Arif Ahmed's recent experience at, at Cambridge. Now, I understand from him it took him six weeks to gather the 25 public signatures in support of his motion to change the Cambridge free speech policy away from respecting all speech, just to tolerating speech. Now, once that was put to a secret ballot, his motion passed with overwhelming support from the Dons. And I think what that shows is that fear is a significant factor here for academics. I think the greater the knowledge of the law that academics can have, as well as the new enforcement mechanisms under the bill, I think that'll help to ameliorate the fear and give academics the framework and practical tools they need to mount a better case for free speech. Was that on time? No, that's, that's it. <laughs> could, could somebody take this away? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, can't carry on. You no, no, actually, that, was, that was... You have a couple of minutes left. Is that it? No, no, that's... Wow. Wow, wow. Under time. <laughs> Well, I guess lawyers are trained to keep their, their remarks extremely to time. I practice so on the tube as well, which <laughs> made me look very strange. There you go. Tips for any students. Do people pay me? Practice <laughs> on the tube. Fantastic. So, uh, they, well, they, I think we've got some very interesting things shaping up already. We've got the, the drawing out of arguments against the position of uh, unlimited free speech, and we've got a kind of anti-legal and a pro-legal position of what we do about it. So, uh, so Professor James... Uh, you have your six minutes now. Where are you going to take us before we open up to the audience? I'm going to start with Kathleen Stock because, I, you know, I'm like everyone else, I think, is very upset that she felt she couldn't be here today. She will not be silenced. Her book, I brought it along, Material Girls, is a brilliant book. It's a philosophical treatise. And I, if you're going to read one chapter, read chapter seven. I found as vice-chancellor that incredibly helpful in framing my approach to certain issues. It's a brilliant book. I, I am so sad she can't be here, but as others have said, and as I said in the introduction earlier, the hero of the day is Professor Adam Tickell, who, that, that, that sentence he said on the Today programme, I will not allow my academics to be silenced. And he also said very, very clearly that there is a disciplinary action needed here. So the it's a very complex situation, the whole University of Sussex uh, situation. It's not straightforward that there, is academ there are academics trying to restrict freedom. It's not even necessarily the case that these are students trying to restrict freedom. There's something terrible going on there, though. And um, it, it, it raises the question, really, I want to hypothesize, though, if it was the university trying to restrict freedom. And we all, we've heard this week the several <coughs> examples of universities trying to restrict academic freedom and free speech. You, you've heard about the one at um, the University of Kent. I, I think you probably heard the Expect Respect module, which all students have to do. It's compulsory. And the topics include white privilege, microaggressions, and pronouns. And if a student ticks all 13 correctly, you get the gold star award, and if you don't, you have to go for, what do we call it, re-education. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the white privilege aspects is I can swear or dress in second-hand clothes 
without having people attribute these choices to the bad morals, the poverty, or the illiteracy of my race. Tick that, and you're well on your way to uh, not being white privileged. Or well, St. Andrews did the same thing, didn't it? They made a new students take a bias test where um, you, you, had to, you had to agree with this sentence, otherwise you weren't allowed in. Again, re-education. Acknowledging your personal guilt is a useful starting point in overcoming on unconscious bias. It goes on. Uh, Imperial College. Campus security guards are told not to ask a black member of staff if they are lost because this carries assumptions of criminality. And so on and so on and so forth. And then also from Scotland, these are examples of if you tick these, then you're not white privileged. It's hard to find the right hair products that work for my hair. I do know that feeling. Yeah. Um, it's hard to find makeup tights and plasters that match my skin tone. Well, th these things are that. But if the university is doing that, is the University of Kent, is the University of St. Andrews, are they within their rights to do that? And my position is, yes, they are. The universities are autonomous bodies. There's a great myth, and we can explore this if you want. They are not public universities in this country. They are all autonomous. They are all independent. The University of Buckingham is the only one that's proud of its independence, but everyone is independent and autonomous. And if they want to have speech codes, if they want to restrict academic freedom, my view is they're entitled to do that because they're autonomous institutions, just as Facebook and other platforms, they should also be allowed to restrict what goes on in their platforms. And newspapers and TV programs and panels at conferences should be able to restrict this. Is it a sensible thing to do? Well, some students may actually quite like it. And I can imagine, I, I was a very rebellious teenager, and I can imagine rather enjoying the fact that my parents would be uncomfortable with the sort of things we get up to on campus. But what it does, it leaves open the gate for those of us who do believe in free speech, who do believe in academic freedom, to show there is an alternative. I'm almost saying, although the, the case of, as I say, the case of Kathleen Stock is complicated, but if there are universities like Kent, like St. Andrews, like Edinburgh that want to restrict free speech, I'm inclined to say, bring it on because it allows my university, it allows Adam Tickell of Sussex moving to Birmingham to stand out and say, we are different. Come to our universities because you believe in free speech and academic freedom, and you can sign up for my university just outside. <laughs> I, I'm very fortunate that I, I, I was controversial years, very controversial, 20, 25 years ago, pre-social pre, uh, media, and I, I, I there, were, there was a double-page spread in the Evening Standard with screaming five-inch headlines saying, is this the most absurd man in Britain today describing me? Um, I, I, I was um, taken to task, let's say, taken to task by Bonnie Greer on the Richard and Judy show for something I'd written. And Jermaine Greer then was a full woman's hour on BBC where she took me to task. But we got on really well. I, I did invite her for a coffee after the programme. Um, she didn't accept, but nonetheless, I, 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 did, I invited her. And... Uh, I do, my heart goes out. I want to end with Kathleen Stock because she is not going to be silenced at this conference. She is a brilliant philosopher and I commend her book to, to you. But I commend the idea of free speech. But let's have voluntarily embrace this as you can at my university. <laughs>
Well, I, I did not expect the panel to end on basically an advert for <laughs> one university over another. Uh, I, well, so I'm going to now come out and, and there's a lot of people in this room. Uh, I want to maximise the time that you've got. But before that, I just want to throw out, I think, a, a couple of themes that I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on. One is, what is the question of what should one do about free speech? Should we go down uh, it being mandated more by law, so it, there are legal defences against having your free speech restricted? Should we go down a, a more bottom-up approach? So I think you know, Joanna is advocating that it's up to individuals to defend their free speech, uh, in which case, well, who decides you know, what, is, what is free speech and what's clamping down on free speech? Uh, and, uh, and, and this is a whole other range of problems in itself. But I think the other question that is kind of emerging from this discussion is, well, what is free speech for? Why, why does it matter? What, what's important? And if people are more comfortable with a narrower range of ideas being expressed, what do we lose? It, and, I, and I think one thing we need to do, those of us, and I certainly count myself amongst them, who want to defend free speech, we need to be able to articulate why. What, what, why is it a good thing? So I think these are two these are two slightly separate themes, but possibly related. What is free speech for? Uh, how should it be defended? But I'm also I'm really keen to hear from people who can articulate arguments, maybe some of the ones that Piers touched on, that say, that, well, actually, there should be restrictions on free speech, and some speech is hate speech, and hate speech is harmful, uh, and this is why we should do something about it, and, and maybe what... I would really encourage you to bring, if you have reasoned arguments why some people's speech should be restricted about particular topics, I would really like to hear them. I think it's very important that we don't take for granted that it's always uh, an untrammeled good thing and that we force arguments to be made for and against it. So I, I would very much encourage that. So on that note, let's see your hands. I'm going to try and get everybody in. Okay, good. First of all, James, I agree. Anyone who worries about hair products is very privileged. Um, no, uh, just wanted to just make two sort of short points. The first one, I completely agree with what you've said about um, Tickle's statement in relation to Sussex University. I've recently graduated from an MA degree in that department. And the thing that slightly worries me is how little we've heard from other academics in Kathleen's department. And I think that what that does is it reflects not on the quality of the people who are there, which I think is a brilliant department with some really brilliant academics in it, but the climate at the moment that means that people worry about being identified by the controversy and that environment where <coughs> academics want to be taken more seriously than just a debate about free speech. I agree with you. I think that that's a good debate to be having. The second thing I wanted to say quickly is on Piers' point about ad hominem arguments, because I think that does dominate a lot of the discussion. Um, we can't be in support of laws of free speech because it's a Tory government. We can't support this person's statement because they're right-wing. I tend to think we should always go with the content of what people are saying, whatever political perspective they come from. But I understand people's anxiety, and I wonder what people think about that. 
Great. Okay, over there. Thanks. Um, I'm an academic from the University of Kent, and I've spent a considerable amount of time over the last two weeks um, speaking out against the Expect Respect uh, module that my own university has introduced for its students. Um, the reason why I've done that in relation to your question to Mandra about speech and its status um, is not because I particularly mind if students want to align themselves with the views and ideas which inform the questions and approach taken in Expect Respect, um, which is critical race theory and gender theory, and that very much underpins the questions and uh, things that the students have to complete if they complete that module. If students want to um, decide those theories are the ones that they want to believe in, that's fine. But for the classrooms that I work in, I want the possibility for it to be an open question as to whether they should um, and want to um, go along with those kinds of ideas. And I do find it problematic that the institution that I work for is foreclosing that openness within a classroom setting. So that gives me some difficulties with one point you've raised, James, about... I mean, I... Maybe universities should have the freedom to do this, but more people need the freedom to contest the decisions made by the councils and their adoption of EDI um, as the leading um, principle. They call it a principle through which universities should now be organised. And I think it does place academics in, in a difficult position now um, in relation to the conduct of the classroom. The question that I got, um, which is also raised by a comment that you made, James, is about the term respect and the utilisation of respect within uh, frameworks developing within universities which foreclose the possibility of discussion. So expect respect has the term respect in it. It says to students, in order to be a respectful member of the academic community at Kent, it's necessary for you to believe in ideas associated with critical race theory and gender theory. Um, a lot of the questions in it, by the way, are much better than the ones that you read out, James, um, the way it conceptualises things, but nonetheless it's driven by those theories. I assume that's also why um, the contest at Cambridge took the form that it did, over whether or not the policy should include the word respect or tolerance. Um, and I'd like to open that up for discussion as to how and why the term respect has become associated with the closing down of discussion rather than the opening up of it. Um, I consider myself a highly respectful member of the academic community um, at the university that I work in, um, but I consider that contrary to the way an understanding of the word respect now appears to operate um, at my place of work. Um, and that does give me some pause for thought, and I'd be interested in other people's views on that. Thank you. Two points, really. First was to Joanna's point about whether people should... Essentially, they're not really making arguments, they're just saying shut up. In practice, I don't really have a problem with them saying shut up, but I think it goes to the wider point, which comes on to Professor James' issue, about places like um, employers and universities, they need to have more confidence in saying, well, that can be your view, but that doesn't mean we're going to fire someone. So them saying shut up or we want to move is fine, they can say that, but it's actually about the cowardice of employers and universities, for example, in institutions, of not necessarily acting upon those voices and following through with it. And then quickly to Professor James's point, I also agree that I think uh, universities are independent institutions, but the problem is they are also the gatekeepers in the best way to social progression, and therefore if the majority of universities aren't uh, are being closed to this, then it's fine because Buckingham and maybe Sussex are taking a stand, but that means perhaps if you agree with those views, then your options for university are Buckingham or Sussex. 
and you can't go to another university, which doesn't seem to be particularly great either. Thank you very much. Hi, Dennis says, Academics for Academic Freedom. I won't mention this. Kathleen Stock hit the headlines, but then last week, uh, David Miller, that lover of academic freedom, was sacked from the University of Bristol. Um, we hear nothing about that from defenders of free speech, which is you know, a contradictory problem because you should defend the free speech of people whose views you detest, as well as those that you are, are sympathetic with. But my main interest is in um, what's happened to academics. They seem to be so infantilised. Now, I'm with Joanna and against state intervention, the state telling people that they're going to be free. This is a contradictory position, to my view. But what has happened to academics? They're not exactly um, vulnerable people. They're well paid. They've got good conditions of service. They've got a nice job. And some, you tell me they're frightened of speaking up. Arif Ahmed says that. You know, Ellie in front uh, did speak up at the University of Kent, and lots of people do. So... What's happened to academics? That's my question to the panel. Have they become infantilised or um, what is happening in universities? Thank you. I love the idea of disconfirming my beliefs and I think that's a great starting point. The, the problem I have with it is that it's not a rational argument always and, and a lot of the arguments that I hear are principally culturally and emotionally driven. So it's my instinct about what is appropriate or inappropriate. And, and so I'm interested in how you combine logic and philosophical argument and, and good answers with a sensitivity to the fact that people think and feel differently. That's a very good um, telling question. Thank you. I think a lot of what you've said in reaction to what's happened to Kathleen Stock has been like a political knee-jerk reaction because you're, you're talking about how you want to defend her transphobia, but like what she's saying is academically wrong. Why would you defend someone who is saying things that aren't true? You may disagree that it's not true because you're transphobic, but that doesn't make her argument better. So I think if you're, what you're wanting to do is defend somebody being wrong because their wrongness proves your hate, then I think you should reassess why you're defending her arguments. Is it because you think that they should be said or is it because you want them to be said because you support what she's saying and its implications on society? I think you've taken a very, like, as a panel, you've all taken a very singular argument. This isn't a battle of ideas you've presented. You've presented one idea and I think I, not many people have stood up and spoken in opposition to the things you've said and you, have, as a panel, haven't provided any any interesting discussion that isn't just the, the standard right-wing response. So I, I think you should, you should say something, something actually material, not just people should be able to say whatever they want. I don't care if it's hateful, because I think most people do care. Thank you very much for bringing that into the room. I'm really glad somebody did. Uh, and I think it also it actually links to what the, the other person was saying about why are we talking about Kathleen Stock and not about David Miller, who was sacked for expressing anti-Semitic opinions. And it's true that I think the response to those two cases has been very different. Could I ask you a supplementary question? Because you have brought that into the room. Do you have an idea for what is the best way to resolve people who, who do have very different points of view on issues like this? Well, that, that's a very broad and very hard question to answer, but I think, um, 
I think we should just listen to, to the people who are affected most of the time instead of letting some you know, very privileged, very disattached uh, academic along the way say, oh, no, I don't think trans people should have rights to live how they want. I think we should, if there's hate speech, hate speech towards trans people, we should ask trans people. And if there's hate speech towards whatever group, we should ask whatever group instead of you know, leaving them out of the discussion like this panel has very much seemed to do and like the discussion in, in the country in general has done. Okay, uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna pick up on, I think that we have heard, as you say, a lot in defense of Kathleen Stock and her ideas. So I'm, I'm not gonna pursue that anymore. Panel, uh, I don't obviously feel you have to respond to every question or we'll be here all day. Uh, Joanna, why don't you kick us off? Okay, I mainly want to address my remarks um, in the context of the discussion on free speech and academic freedom that we've been having, but I kind of can't resist the urge just to make one point in response to what you've just said, which is the fact that transphobia is a very new word. It's a word that was not really around at all in common usage, uh, even seven, eight years ago. It's obviously a very highly um, emotive word, and it's a word that suggests a deep-rooted fear and hatred and loathing, and you've implied yourself wants to have kind of eradicated from existence is the way that some people uh, assume or some people define transphobia. Uh, sorry, if I can steal your prop for one second. I mean, having read Kathleen's book, having read numerous articles that she's written, having listened to some of her lectures, I really struggle to match that definition of transphobia to Kathleen Stock's body of, of work. And I think to come back to the points I was making in my opening remark about uh, just calling for people to be disappeared, to be silenced, to shut up, is not engaging in an intellectual debate. It's not challenging their ideas. By the same token, I think just throwing out the word transphobia to something which um, can even be applied to stating biological facts. So I would say quite happily that only women have a vagina, have a cervix. Obviously, not all women have a cervix. Um, you know, not going into too much of a biology lesson here. But I think there is a biological distinction that can be drawn between males and females. And I absolutely refute the charge that that is a transphobic statement. Uh, and yet, the way transphobia is described, you know, that, that's very much the implication. Anyway, sorry, I just wanted to get that in. I want to just really take a minute to address some of the other remarks that were coming up. In particular, uh, the comments made by a couple of people about um, academics and the role of academics in this debate and creating a certain climate on um, campus because. Two academics stand out for me in the course of the past 24 hours. The first is Adam Tickell, who we've talked about. But there was another academic who really was responsible uh, inadvertently for bringing to light on Twitter what had happened to Kathleen Stock. Kathleen Stock had posted on Twitter that she was experiencing some difficulties at Sussex. But I think there was a fair bit of uncertainty for most people who are not actually on that campus about what was actually going on. And there was one academic, um, I won't name him, who posted screen photos of these posters, um, post, uh, photos of the Instagram page that the students had set up, the anti-transaction students. And he basically said, I agree 
with these posters. He then tried to wriggle out of it and say, oh, well, I don't mean she should be sacked when the posters were clearly calling for her to be sacked. Um, but that's an academic. That's an academic at the University of Sussex. It's one of Kathleen Stock's colleagues saying, I agree with these posters. And I think what's so troubling about that, and it comes down to this issue of climate, is it creates a climate on campus where the moral authority is on the side of the students who are putting up these posters, letting off flares. And let's be honest, you know, this is Kathleen Stock is not an isolated incident. Uh, we've had Rosa, um, sorry, I can't remember her surname now, at the University of Reading, um, who, you know, students had pissed on her door to be uh, very, very, very blunt, uh, you know, horrible things happening. Uh, and yet th these students feel as if they've got the moral authority to act in this way because other academics on campus are cheering them on, quite frankly. Not only academics, but we can have a look at our own prime minister and the leader of the Labour Party, both of whom struggled over the question, uh, do only women have a cervix? Neither of them were able to answer that question. Keir Starmer went further and said, oh, it's not right. We shouldn't say that. Well, if the leader of the Labour Party is going to go on television and say, we should not say that, that's not right, you should not say that, then those students who think it's okay to piss on someone's door, to issue death threats, to billboard posters around campus calling for a named individual to be fired, you know, they clearly feel as if they have a moral authority coming from the very, very top of society and from within the university. And, and it's for that reason, sorry, I promise I'll shut up now. It's for that reason that I worry that we could make all the legal changes we like, we can make all the changes within university infrastructure that we like, but it won't actually change a thing because when that's the broader climate that we're up against, that's what we've got to challenge, that's what we've got to push back against. And that just takes bravery. It takes a lot more people like Kathleen Stock, a lot more people like Adam Tickell to really challenge this climate so that if there are legal changes, they may actually um, be impactful. At the moment, I don't see how they would do anything that would be in any way positive. Okay, I just want to say, I will come back to you, uh, but I, I want to let all the panel respond first. Uh, and, and also, I mean, yeah, fair enough, and in Kathleen's absence, I think it's, it's fair enough to defend her. But I think, you know, this person has raised a broader point, which is if, if there is a minority group, especially, who feel that they, their voices are not heard and they're not represented, and that what is being discussed has an effect on them, a material effect on them. I mean, peers raised this aspect of harm, that they feel that speech is harmful to them. Should there not be some kind of restriction on speech that they feel harms them, or at the very least, some kind of deliberate opening up of space for them to make their response? Would anyone like to pick up on that question? Because I think that has been raised, and it, and it needs to be answered. I think this is one of the the big underlying questions of this debate. Do you want to pick that up, Piers? Since you kind of touched yeah, on it Yeah, I, I did, thanks very much. And I've got some other comments too, but I'd, I'd be guided by your time. Um, I think, I mean, several questions have uh, arisen from this. Timandra, you opened up by asking what the purpose of free speech is. I wanted to talk about that, but didn't get time. Uh, it's a very important question because there are really two, at least two angles you can take on this. Uh, some would say that free speech is just intrinsically valuable. Why? Because it's a particular derivation of a more general intrinsic value, which is freedom. So, I mean, the value of free speech just comes from the value of freedom. What's the value of freedom? Well, again, very intricate question. 
Uh, some people don't value it, some people do. But I suppose the, the immediate answer is to say, well, if anybody wants to restrict my freedom, they are themselves exercising a freedom to restrict others. They are claiming a freedom that they're denying to me. Uh, that's the initial reply, but, you know, we're not going to solve this question in, in five minutes or five hours. Um, there's another question, though, I think, about, yes, um, from over there, respect and tolerance. This is what um, Dr. Arif Ahmed raised um, when he uh, got Ch Cambridge to change its uh, regulations about what sort of speech is allowed. Um, Arif Ahmed, I believe, is at this conference, though I don't think in this room, so... Um, um, Maybe, you know, anyway, I mean, he was quite right. I mean, there's a, a great dis this difference between tolerating something and respecting it. Uh, sometimes the words are used interchangeably, but toleration is basically a matter of putting up with something you don't like or don't approve of. If I tolerate you, I don't approve or agree with what you say, but I think you should be allowed to say it. Respect is a nebulous term. I think the way that Arif Ahmed understood it when he protested against its use at Cambridge was the idea that if, you, that if you disagree with something strongly, say, say it's a religion or some sort of political ideology, then that itself is a lack of respect. Uh, well, so it is, but then why, why, um, why say we have to be respectful? Some opinions just don't deserve respect. Um, I think we'd all agree with that. I mean, some, some opinions are just ridiculous. Um, there are all sorts of views I don't respect, but should I tolerate people who hold them? As long as they don't threaten others, and I'll come to what a threat might be. Yes, I think generally we should. Um, and I think that the fact that the Cambridge Congregation, or whatever it's called, passed that amendment uh, almost unanimously uh, touches on something else that was raised, I think, from that side of the room, which is about fear. I mean, I've noticed, although it's purely anecdotal, so I can't prove it, that there are certain political causes that get academics on social media really going. So George Floyd is murdered last year. There's a huge surge of activity on Facebook, you know, how dreadful this is, how we need to purge ourselves of racism. Um, Samuel Paty, a French teacher, is murdered, beheaded the same year uh, because he put up cartoons of Prophet Muhammad. Nothing on academic Facebook. And people just aren't interested. I mean, I'm not saying people should not be interested, by the way, in the murder of George Floyd. It was a terrible thing. I'm glad the man was convicted. But there's a sort of, there is a kind of, a sort of bias here, which, which needs to be admitted to. I think a lot of academics do support people like Kathleen Stock, but they won't say so. Either they haven't got tenure yet, they're afraid they might, it might count against them, or they just want a quiet life. Ask them in private, they'll say, yeah, well, I actually agree, but it's not my fight. Glad somebody's fighting it, but I'd rather do something else. I'd rather talk about formal logic or formal epistemology or something like that. Um, on the question uh, of um, emotional and versus rational dry drivers that came from that side of the room. Very good question. I mean, my own feeling is it's a deep, difficult question. But people do have, you might call them biases, you might call them inclinations. Some people are just constitutionally infuriated by reports of infringement of free speech. Other people are constitutionally infuriated by reports of inequality. Um, that's a kind of different way of thinking. It's not that the first necessarily deny all that's said by the second, but some people are just made angry by, by different things. Some people, I mean, many people in this room, I'm sure, are made angry by stories of, of, of infringement of freedom. Other people uh, are made angry by other things. There are emotional roots to this. Uh, read Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, uh, to understand a bit of that, about the emotional drivers. Same with Brexit. I mean, it wasn't really about the arguments about democracy and the... Uh, and immigration, it was about, you know, the sort of person you are if you're a Remainer, or the sort of person you are if you're a Lever. Just briefly on the question of Kathleen, I, I mean, this shouldn't be about 
um, transgender stuff or a particular person. But I just wanted to reply to what was said here. I'm glad you did raise that point because it, you know, you probably knew that most people in this room probably don't agree with you. So good. I'm, I'm glad you raised the issue. Um, I do think, though, we need to contextualise this. Kathleen Stock's uh, notoriety came because she proposed, uh, she opposed an amendment to the Gender Recognition Act 2004, which would make self-identification alone sufficient for legal recognition of being a particular. That was the issue. It wasn't really about the issue of what's a man, what's a woman. I mean, she has written on that, and I believe she does believe that trans women are not women. But, and that's, we can debate that, but that wasn't the essence of it. I mean, I think like me and many people, she's a sort of, you know, um, let it all hang out liberal, essentially. Let people live whatever life tells, as whatever they want, as long as they don't harm other people. The issue came with the damage that she believed was potentially inflicted on um, biological women when a trans woman could simply say, I'm a woman, let me into a woman's prison at the hospital, refuge, you know, um, changing room, this sort of thing. She was actually speaking up for... Um, not a minority, but half the population. That, I'm not saying her argument was right, but that's what it was about. Um, and, you know, we have to take that on board. So her argument was that biological women are potentially threatened by this. I mean, there was one prisoner called Karen White, convicted of rape, who actually went on to, uh, to rape or assault a, women, a woman prisoner because this person, Karen White, was a trans woman and was put in a woman's prison. Anecdotal, you might say, but, you know, a high impact, even if low incidence kind of, of problem. So those are just some, I mean, I could say more, but I'll shut up, Good. right? <laughs> okay, but still nobody has really addressed this question of, if, sorry, I'm going to let the rest of the panel respond. I am going to come out, though. I, I realise we have a lot of people to get in. But I really think we need to address this question of, and, and I think it is two related questions, why, why are people exercised about the rights of Kathleen Stock to keep her job and not David Miller? Is it indeed, as this person has suggested, simply that one, one feels more sympathy instinctively for Kathleen Stock's position and less sympathy for David Miller's position? Uh, or can we make uh, a reasoned case why they should be treated differently or perhaps they shouldn't be treated differently? And we actually need to really say, well, if we're going to be tolerant of views, we're going to be tolerant of all views. And, and, I, and I think, you know, this is a really valid point. Are we simply defending the free speech of people that we like their ideas and speech? If not, what is the basis on which we can defend the right of people to say things that upset other people to the degree that they feel psychically harmed? I, I, I think that's, that's what we, you know, that they feel that their personhood is attacked. And, and I think we actually have to make a response to this. It's not good enough just to say, well, we Kathleen Stock's book, she's not really transphobic, because this is a broader question. And while you know, I, I also don't think she's transphobic, but this is an important question and we need to answer it. So can either of the Jameses answer it? James, well, thank can you, you. answer that's, this? That's nice, nice and straightforward one. I mean, uh, I mean you, you may disagree with the way that the law has developed around this, but I think it does give a partial answer to that question. You know, when we're talking about things like academic freedom, and academic freedom of speech, the law has started to scope out the limits of where that might be. So certain speech will not be afforded any kind of protection, and particularly speech which contravenes Article 17, so speech which is very extreme like Holocaust denial and things like that. That kind of speech will never be attracting protection under the law. 
and the question the, the question is is that you know the right kind of boundary we should be setting and then is it just a question of well have you crossed it or should the boundary be much lower than that now i you know my view is that provided speech is kind of done in an academic context and kind of based on their you know expertise or competence in academic context they should be given a very wide kind of um, latitude for academics to speak and speak freely in different contexts so not just in research papers but on twitter and things like that and the law should afford them a very high level of protection to do so uh, but you know perhaps the difference between the david miller case and the kathleen stop case is you know miller went further than, than kathleen did and kind of crossed that line so I, I don't know if that is a helpful answer, but that's what a lawyer would say in answer to that. Okay, well, that's the beginning of something. Can it, yeah. Professor James, would yeah. you have sacked David Miller? Should David Miller have been sacked? So if David Miller had been on this panel and had not come for various reasons, my defence would have been of David Miller and not Kathleen Stock. I'd be categorical, and as, as James the Younger be my witness, on Wednesday or Thursday night we had a dinner this week where we discussed this very issue and um, it's, so I'm, I'm in agreement with David, Dennis. Now, actually, I don't know the full details of the case, but I imagine I would want to stand up for his rights to say things too. Because, um, Piers, you had a list, didn't you, of where it is valid to restrict free speech. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and we need philosophers here. This is what we need. And philosophers like Piers, they've got a list of those restrictions. One was if, if there was incitement to violence and so on. Um, and presumably then the counter is a defense of free speech. Jamie White has just got a new book coming out, Why Free Speech Matters. I think he hits the spot. He, he disagrees with you on def defamation. He thinks defamation is a gray area. But nonetheless, I think the other areas where free speech should re be restricted, he agrees on. And he defends free speech. Thus, he says it's valuable because it's without free speech and academic freedom, we would never have the knowledge creation that we need and we would never have the bulwark against tyranny. These are two reasons to defend free speech and you don't defend it when there's incitement to violence and other issues. So, for example, if... Uh, philosopher had said trans people don't have the rights to live as they want and had incited people to act with that in mind, that we would be right to want to restrict that. If a, a, a trans person is merely offend, sorry, if a philosopher is merely offending a trans person, then because a mere offense historically, if you stop offense, then progress disappears. Imagine Darwin. He offended so many people. He came in and said, actually, well, what did he say? He said, you don't, morality does not depend on there being a god or religion. So many people were offended. You had the, the high and mighty saying, I just hope it's not true what he's saying. And he would have been stopped, wouldn't he, in today's climate? Um, Newtonian mechanics, people say, oh, well, you can't speak outside of that box. That would have stopped Einstein. So... Uh, you know, I'm greatly, in, I, I'm greatly in favor of the question you ask. I think there are philosophical answers. We need philosophers for this, which is why um, we need uh, 
Kathleen as much as possible. I, I admire, and thank you for coming and raising the questions, I'll, I'll ask questioner, I admire you, because the fact that you're here, there's a transcendental argument why you're here, is because you do believe in free speech and you want to debate with us, and I think that's really terrific, and, and, and all power to you and everyone else who wants to come and debate and explore the arguments, read the book and find chapter and verse on why you disagree with her, and then you can argue rather than come in with glib statements. But several people mentioned this climate of fear amongst academics. And I suppose, you know, maybe Dennis hit on something, actually. Maybe it's because academics are too comfortable. They've got too nice a pension. There's, you know, there's too nice living conditions. There's so much to lose, isn't there, for academics if, if they speak out and get fired. Um, so, you know, I, I do, I, I do uh, understand people's fear. Not everyone wants to go into the lion's den and present alternative arguments. Um, but, I, you know, you, 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 you criticise. I wasn't just talking about my university, but Cambridge now. Cambridge. Cambridge stopped that motion, didn't they, with, uh, with um, uh, the, the, the person you described earlier. And Cambridge is now, you know, in, in, in a way that we want to be... I, I appreciate what you say about in Kent, Ellie, that, you know, you now feel almost disempowered within your own university. But you have... Surely you do have power. You have power through Senate. You have power through council all the rest to try and make your university respond to what possibly there's a silent majority of academics if only we would you know encourage each other to be brave and to be bold and speak out speak out yeah right we have about 15 minutes left and i can see i think there's more than 15 of you with your hands up i still don't feel any of the panel have properly responded to this question of well you know what if somebody's free speech is affecting members of another group and they don't feel that they have uh, enough space to, to answer. So if someone could answer the floor, I'd love it. However, I'm going to ask you all to keep your, your interventions really short because I would love to get you all in if possible. Okay. Uh, answering your question about the function of free speech, I think you, you mentioned it very briefly, is that it is a necessary condition for a group of people to come to a common understanding of what is true and what is bullshit. And I... Um, um, Kindly Inquisitor, very good uh, uh, book to notice. Kindly Inquisitors, yes, yeah, really good book. Yeah. Um, also, my main point is that uh, I used recently an argument to defeat the, uh, the argument of, uh, well, the people are just getting account, uh, uh, held into account uh, for the, they don't want to face the consequences of free speech, uh, of, of their speech. Um, I said, just take that logic and bring it back a few decades ago, and you could tell uh, gay and lesbian people that they were completely free to come out of the closet. They could do it, they just needed to face, uh, you know, ridicule and discrimination and being fired and losing their, their livelihood. And I think it makes it very clear that this kind of uh, uh, consequences are, are not in line with the principles of free speech. Uh, hello, I just wanted to say, I think the comments on Adam Tickell are pretty inaccurate. I think that it's a bit of an opportunity, uh, opportunistic kind of act from him. Um, a lot of us here are from uh, Sussex, uh, Liberate the Debate, which is a free speech society there. And we've had some pretty uh, controversial speakers in the past, including uh, an MEP uh, from UKIP called Bill Etheridge. Um, and during these events, we, you know, we've had uh, heavy protests, we've had violence against our committee members um, for hosting these people. Um, and a pretty uh, hostile SU who's actively tried to, to counteract these, these events and these people. Um, and uh, the university, Adam Tickell in particular, have provided no real support, and if they have, we've not seen it, and it's, it's not come through in any reasonable kind of action. 
Um, and I think that he's only started making these comments now since he's leaving and going to Birmingham and he's going to face no, real re he's going to face no repercussions for it from the, uh, the student body. So uh, I, don't, I don't think the praise for him is... is a sort of okay, thank you very much. I'm not an academic, although I've been teaching at Berkeley on and off for 15 years as a kind of hobby. Um, I'm, actually, uh, I'm actually a former physician who's just become a merchant banker. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm British, but I'm also American, and so I have a huge admiration for the American Constitution. I would actually like to import it to Britain and just delete the Second Amendment. Um, I think one of the things that's commonly misunderstood, however, about the, um, the American Constitution is the much-lauded First Amendment, and I think people overestimate the degree to which it actually protects free speech. Um, it simply constrains governments. It's a sort of fundamental misunderstanding about the American Constitution. But I do think there's some important jurisprudence around the First Amendment, which might be instructive to the British context. And I would also add the degree to which the First Amendment, by constraining government, has passed this very difficult question about speech constraints to the private sector has led to some very interesting developments around where constraints on speech now actually take place. They're not government constraints in America. They are commercial organizations like Twitter and Facebook and other organizations, which means we have another reason to look at what's going on in America, because those organizations are now controlling a significant amount of what may be said in this country. And so I think my real question to you is, what do we actually do to constrain the behavior of organizations which have the right to behave the way they do at the moment, but which, which are in fact having an incredibly um, depressing effect on free speech in this country from afar. That's a very good question, and you've just opened up a whole new ball game, which we're not going to cover in the last 10 minutes. I was really interested in which this speaker here, because if I'm honest, your faces look very uncomfortable when you were speaking, and you really haven't answered what, what the, the individual has, uh, has put forward. Um, and I wonder, part of which is because of um, going and using the philosophy that uh, Dr. Ben's talking about. I'm interested in Jeremy Warden's book, The Harm in Hate Speech, in which he talks about the way in which speech can undermine individual social, under social standing in society. That is to say that we have a membership of our society in which we are all equal. And if speech begins to question membership and reduce standing in society, that does constitute significant harm. And I suspect that part of what the problems are is that the language that's been deployed has really questioned individuals' membership of a society of which we are all members and equal. Very well put and admirably concise, thank you. I was going to first of all talk about my experience as a lecturer and the yearly ritual about being pulled out and said, oh, some students want to complain about, you know, you know feeling offended by your lectures. But I'm not going to do this because I think this is boring. Uh, but what I'm going to want to talk about is being German and we have very different kind of free speech laws because of history or something like this. Um, but this has also had a consequence. So for 60 years, like nasty ideas were you know, were not talked about, they were put under the carpet, we couldn't, you know, showing images, books or so was frowned upon. And now we have a generation of people who cannot argue against fascism, right? They don't, you know, if you ask them why is fascism bad, they say it's bad because it's forbidden, yes? So the 
the most important, most important thing about free speech and the not uh, banning of bad ideas and then the free discussions of them is that you can argue against them. You will lose that. You will use that, lose that ability, and that is frightening for me with the rise of the far right in Europe at the moment. Thank you very much. I think David Miller was um, effectively fired because he said, accused students of being agents of Israel and so was probably f fired for a gross dereliction of pastoral duties as a lecturer. Um, more, responding to the point earlier about the American Constitution, I kind of regard myself as a free speech absolutist, but I think it's terrible that senators have to raise something like $10,000 a day during their term from sponsors in order to ensure re-election, I think. And you also have the case of J.K. Rowling being accused of using her fortune effectively to deploy lawyers' letters to silence people that are accusing her of transphobia. So without getting into the, that debate, but clearly people with money have the ability to withstand consequences of free speech that other people, particularly people in somewhat precarious jobs in academia might not have. Very good point, and again, concise. Thank you very much. My uh, part, uh, I guess, uh, starts with an anecdote from the distant days of earlier this week, um, where we had an assembly at school, um, and the teacher giving the assembly uh, had quite obviously stuck to the back of her laptop uh, the updated racial pride flag and the BLM fest. Uh, so I would just like to make it known that uh, teachers in secondary school uh, very much uh, deepen the source uh, with these sorts of ideologies. And uh, I would um, like to pose a quick question. Uh, do you think that ideas such as critical race theory uh, that directly threaten freedom of speech uh, should be banned in favour of protecting freedom of speech? Very good question. Should you ban ideas that in themselves seek to repress other ideas? Thank you so much. As somebody said, I love being challenged, so that was really exciting to hear. First of all, I think there is a hierarchy of needs. So somebody's need for intellectual expression, somebody's need for speech. Does it really come before somebody's right to live, somebody's right to dignity? somebody's right to live peacefully in a society. So if your academic freedom is impeaching on somebody's life to dignity, somebody's right to dignity, is that really fair? So that's a question and a statement in itself. Uh, the second thing is, um, how do these people who have been historically marginalized, do they really have the intellectual and safe spaces to express dissent in a way that you like? Of course, like I would love for a minority community to step up and write a research paper on it, but they have been denied these opportunities, not because they're not smart or not intelligent or not deserving, but because system is just skewed up in that way. Secondly, if there are groups, somebody said here that there is a certain kind of speech and there is a certain kind of narrative that is given more importance in the woke generation. Is that really wrong? We've had centuries and centuries and centuries of having a certain kind of kind of thought dominates. So is that really wrong that today the balance is finally skewing in somebody else's favor? Is that wrong or is it just uncomfortable to share power, right? Uh, and the last one is somebody said that, you know, like if some, uh, one of you said that um, if uh, free speech is impeaching on uh, 
on right to live, then yes. But if it's only offending you, then you should not mind it. Offense leads to stereotypes. Stereotype leads to discrimination. And discrimination leads to systemic injustice. System is just not a set of rules. System is people. So when you cause emotional offense to somebody, that leads to stereotypes. And these stereotypes show up in systems. So yeah, so these are my three, four short points. Thank you. Eloquently and concisely put. Thank you. I have the joy of being a student at the University of Kent. Um, and I just would like to pick up on Professor James's point of universities being autonomous, because I completely understand the point, but I think that should come at the cost of accountability. We as students don't know who wrote that module. Um, so we, and we also, they've shut off feedback opportunities. So we don't know and have no one to contact um, to sort of voice our um, disagreement with how the module has been um, handled, making it being made compulsory. Um, and quickly, for closing statements, I was wondering what the panel think, where this is headed, to what end um, is free speech going to be restricted? Will it end up coming full circle, or are we sort of, is this just going to keep getting worse and worse? Very good point. My frustration with what happened to Kathleen Stuck, and also to other um, lecturers at um, other universities, both here and abroad, is that it's based on stopping certain groups hearing certain speech, we, in fact, we should be teaching them and helping them develop debate so they can come back with an answer as well. It seems as though there seems to be this like, arrogance and also this lack of trust that people can actually, from these groups, can actually debate these ideas and now we have to protect them and back them in cutting more somehow. The other thing is we talk about marginalised groups as though they've all got one high in mind, like the Borg in Star Trek, but they haven't. But we don't talk about the individuals in those groups. There seems to be an assumption that people within marginalised groups all think the same. Great example, I know this will probably go on YouTube, I'll probably get banned or something, but Black Lives Matter, I have major issues with that. But then, as a black person, I'm as been assumed from others that I, that I think oh, everything's great. If black Lives Matter isn't. So to me, we need to start teaching um, these groups how to debate and help them develop, instead of just speaking for them. Because at the end of the day, they might not agree with that people who speak on their behalf. Brilliant, okay. So you have the last word from the floor, and also a bit of a challenge to you. Is it not better that you should actually get the chance to debate transphobic ideas or other ideas you disagree with, so that you're you're tooled up in the same way as people in Germany apparently are not tooled up to challenge fascism? So anyway, over to you. Yeah, I think debate is is useful, even if it can, you know, even if one side is hateful. Um, so my quick points. <laughs> my. my my quick points are that you mentioned that transphobia is a new term, a term that lots of people aren't used to, but the term anti-Semitism was only coined in the 20s, and that's a problem that's exist existed for millennia, and so has transphobia, so it's unfair to sort of complain about it being modern when, it's, when you know, that doesn't make it harder to understand. Um, also, you kind of said that Kathleen Stock didn't really say anything bad, but uh, Kathleen, Kath, well, she said uh, trans women are still males with male genitalia, which, you know is wrong, even if you disagree. Um, and, you know, if, you, if you're really thinking that that's true, you should consider what makes somebody a, wo a woman or a man, because if you're just going around thinking about... Shush, shush, shush! If you're just going around thinking about random people's genitals, that's really weird, 
And I think, I think I'm more scared of you if, if you're thinking about people's genital tools when you interact with them. Um, and finally, um, you, you really seem to, to draw a difference between uh, uh, how you offend trans people, but uh, it's hatred when it's other groups. And you don't, you don't seem to view them as equivalent because like, you, you continually talk about anti-Semitism as hatred when, as somebody who is Jewish, the stuff that's being said about Jews is not as bad in the modern day as the stuff being said about trans people. And I think that it's just because they're differently established groups and you, you are hateful to one and not the other. And I, I think that you should really consider that before you're making arguments like that. Thank okay, you. thank you very much. Okay, panel, you, you literally have, like, you have about 20 seconds each, technically. Uh, so please try and keep it within a minute. We don't want to start the day by overrunning. I'm going to take you in reverse order. So I think that means we start with Professor James. Your minute starts now. So Jeremy Waldron was mentioned at the harm in hate speech. So, of course, we ex I accept, anyway, that there can be harm in some hate speech, not necessarily all the time, but there can be harm in a way that we would like not there not to be harm. But you've got to look at these things in the round as well, because there's also harm in stopping what might be called hate speech. There's also harm in allowing governments to define what might be called hate speech and enforcing it. And that way, to me, lies uh, the, the road to tyranny and the road to reducing um, uh, enhancing human knowledge rather than uh, enhancing it. So I, I'm, I, I, it's not saying that there's no harm, potentially. It definitely is saying there's not always harm in hate speech, but there's, it can, we've got to take it in the round. Good, admirably precise uh, and concise. Lawyer James. <laughs> I prefer that uh, designation. Um, we had the question over here, will things get worse? And I, I really want to strike a more optimistic tone. I think things will get better. I think we're seeing a kind of general shift in culture more towards academic freedom. We'll have the new toolkits for organisations, support organisations like Counterweight and the Free Speech Union to support people even at more junior levels with, with free speech issues. And we, we, we have the shift in um, incentive structures. I mean, you, we, I, it was really interesting to hear the comments about Sussex from over here. You know, it, it may be because uh, Professor Tickell is leaving, but it may be because he's you know, sensing the change in the public mood. He's, he's, you know, institutions are fearful of aggressive public letters from, say, Free Speech Union or lawyers from academics who are getting more tooled up on what their rights are um, and things like this. So, you know, maybe, maybe others will disagree with me, but I want to be optimistic and say things will get better. OK, hedged optimism. Uh, philosopher <laughs> Piers. Uh, thank you very much. One minute. OK, um, right, there were... Two questions that Tamandra said hadn't been answered, I think. One was about the purpose of free speech, the other was about the harm principle, uh, briefly. Uh, obviously, you, give a, you can give a long answer to both those questions. There are two possible purposes of free speech. It, it's intrinsically good to exercise one's freedom, and it's instrumentally good in reaching truth. Uh, the second argument isn't always sound, because there might be other ways to reach truth apart from free speech. Authoritarian teaching methods might be more effective. So all I can say is that, generally speaking, um, an atmosphere of freedom help people cultivate truth-sensitive methods of inquiry that are more likely to lead to truth, but may not do so. More important point, the harm principle, because I said in the end of my speech and didn't have time to develop it, yeah, um, libertarians always appeal to Mill and say, you know, 
let anybody do what they want unless it causes harm to others. Opponents say, yes, but these people, transphobes or racists or whatever, are harming others. I think this is fine in the abstract. I, I take the point from the gentleman about Jeremy Walden, uh, how there may be a social effect on minorities or minority, uh, majorities speaking up. But abstract arguments don't always work for concrete cases. Um, we need to know it concretely in a particular controversy, like the Kathleen Stock one, what was said that was harmful. And if the, where people are being restricted from saying what may be the truth on the grounds of what actually is offence, but is reconceptualised as harm, and that can happen, then I think we're in dangerous territory. But it's all very difficult, and it's a, I welcome all the contributions to this nuanced discussion. It is all very difficult indeed. So, uh, Joanna, you have, like, minus time in which <laughs> Sorry, to sum up no. this entire debate and send people off for a weekend of, of free and civil speech and debate. Off you go. Thank you. Um, I think if you truly believe in free speech and think it's really one of the most, well, not one of, but the most important um, principle that we have in society... Uh, then you have to defend David Miller in the same way as you defend Kathleen Stock. And again, I would have done that if circumstances had been different today. Uh, you can't argue for the banning of any ideas, although I would, a separate point, I would argue that schools are slightly different institutions to universities or elsewhere in society. But as a general principle, you can't argue for ideas to be banned, however much you might disagree with those ideas. And, and actually, in um, distinction to some other people on the panel, I actually think we have too many laws restricting our free speech. And I would look not to be introducing new laws, but to repealing um, too much of the legislation that we have uh, in society today that, that looks to restrict what we can say. I think I have a fundamental problem with drawing a distinction between mere offence and incitement to violence. And I think the idea that you can have laws to guard against incitement to violence um, paves the way for censorship today because, unfortunately, this argument about psychic harm um, very quickly ends up uh, teetering over into incitement to violence. Incitement to violence is no longer somebody holding a gun and another person saying fire. Incitement to violence is nowadays equated to you've upset me, you've offended me, you've, uh, you've hurt my psychic sense of self. And that comes to a much broader cultural um, climate, which we've been talking about. The only way to challenge that is, again, to push back against this climate. I would argue, personally, it's much more threatening to my dignity. It's much more threatening to my sense of self, my sense of who I am, to have laws or people that seek to protect me from arguments. If you, have any, if I, if you want to respect my dignity, then let me face all, the, all different ideas. Let me face offensive ideas. Let me argue back. That is how you treat me with dignity. You do not respect my sense of self by seeking to protect me from ideas. Very final point. I think what we have going on today, unfortunately, with these arguments about psychic harm, is a weaponization of victimhood, where people are aware that being a victim affords them a status and a power, and that's what we really need to push back against. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.